You are now listening to the Fat Fix Podcast with David Flowers, a show talking about all things fat loss and health for the general population. Helping people understand why they are in the position they're in right now, rather than just focusing on what they need to do. Your no-nonsense personal trainer friend that you can have access to in your pocket whenever you need some help, guidance or just to kick up the arse. Hello and welcome to the Fat Fix podcast for episode number 34. This week I was joined by Nick Lamb, aka the online sleep coach. Nick is a strength coach from the US. During his time coaching, he didn't come across more of a missing link than sleep, whether the goal was overall health, weight loss or improved performance. Sleep was the key to success. In today's episode, we discuss all things sleep, from its impact on performance, appetite, metabolism, and much, much more. So without further ado, this is episode number 34 of the Fat Fix podcast, All Things Sleep, featuring Nick Lab. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the Fat Fix podcast. Thanks for having me. Just before we get underway, could you just give the listeners a little bit of a rundown on who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Nick Lamb. Um, I guess more notably now I'm known as the online sleep coach. So obviously my current expertise is in sleep, providing sleep coaching for for a variety of different people. I've worked with um, kind of all walks and all different types of sleep issues, um, all the way up to professional athletes um, as well. I have been in the industry as a coach for about the last decade. Um, started off as just a you know traditional strength and conditioning coach, working in big box gyms. Um, spent the majority of my career actually working in the rehabilitative setting, so working with people in a post rehabilitative um, context, where you know I really just became fascinated with all the variables that went into someone actually getting injured versus someone else. Um, what impacted their recovery times, their ability to um, you know get back to the activities that they enjoyed versus getting re injured. Um, and that led me down the rabbit hole of things like stress management, nutrition, and obviously sleep was a big piece of that. And I really just became, you know, fascinated by everything about sleep. Um, and even more so, I think how little attention it was getting in the world of coaching, right? So a lot of trainers and coaches are, you know, having conversations with their clients about sleep. They might be asking a few questions. They may even be offering a few tips or a few pieces of advice. Um, but I find that you know, when we talk about just how important sleep is, it just wasn't getting the right amount of attention and being actually coached. Um, so that's been my focus recently um, over the last year or so has been, you know, taking my coaching approach and educating other coaches and other practitioners on how they can do the same. Yeah, what was it that made you transition from being a coach to simply focusing on just sleep? Was it, was it a big factor that you were seeing a lot of your clients getting injured and just not recovering and the training performance was subpar. Did that, is that what kind of led you down the rabbit hole of looking more into sleep? Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a combination of, of all those things. I mean, for, you know, first and foremost, it was just the, the sheer amount of people that were struggling with sleep that I was finding. And, you know, when I talk about people struggling with sleep, there's a wide spectrum here, obviously, like there's, you know, there's people who are just every so often might struggle with sleep. There's people who just think that they're sleeping okay, but don't really get the optimal amount and they're missing out on some of the benefits, obviously. And then there's people with full-blown sleep issues who have been dealing with chronic issues for months and even years. But you know, what I was finding was somewhere on that spectrum, a lot of my clients were falling. So you know, maybe I would even say 75% of my clients were somewhere on that spectrum where 
they were either really struggling with sleep or they just weren't getting the amount that I would like them to, um, knowing just how important it is. Um, yeah, and then I, I found time and time again, and I'm, I'm sure this is something that you know people can relate to, and I'm sure even trainers and coaches can relate to as well. I was finding the clients that were doing all the right things or seemingly doing all the right things, right? They were checking the boxes in terms of trying to lose weight or trying to improve their performance, right? They were exercising regularly. Um, they were really dialed in on their diet. Um, they had even done some type of elimination diets where they were trying to find things that were possibly inflammatory for them. Really, they were going down all these paths to trying to either improve their body composition or decrease the chronic pain that they had, and they still weren't seeing results. So you know, I found that in a good amount of those people, when I dug a little bit deeper, sleep tended to be that missing link, or at least one of those missing links. Um, and it's just one of those things that if you don't check that box, you're really going to have an uphill battle with everything else that you're trying to do. So it's not to say that I don't do any of the other things. I still do, you know, regular strength coaching and training. Um, I still provide nutrition advice and do health coaching as well. But, you know, I just found that if, again, if we don't check that box of sleep, if that isn't the foundation that we lay first, you know, everything else is just all that much harder. Yeah, I, I like that you, you mentioned that because it's, it's something, it's kind of an area that often gets spoken about a lot, but not taken very much seriously um, from uh, lots of people. It's like the whole vegetable thing, isn't it? Eat your vegetables. People know that they need to do certain things and sleep kind of falls within that bracket. People saying you're getting enough sleep. And it's kind of disregarded in, in some senses from a lot of people, especially as well in the fitness industry. So it's good that you've, you've gone down that niche because it is, it is an area that I've never heard of anybody like yourself who is, who, who's classified as an online sleep coach because it's not something that's really focused on so much uh, as opposed to all the other elements of what we regard as health and fitness. Um, with sleep, it's obviously such a massive topic and it, we can go into so many things. I've, I've been reading lots of books on sleep, like Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker and things like that. And just what it contributes towards and it contributes towards absolutely everything we can possibly think of where we would have this podcast for about five hours if you were to even scratch the surface of what sleep and its impacts does. But I think we'll kick this off um, by talking about a little bit about the sleep physiology, a bit about like how the whys and the what's, just to give the listeners a little bit of an idea of what's going on with sleep and how, what actually happens basically. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's probably even better, like you said, to focus on the hows of sleep. So, you know, when I first started doing more of these podcasts and talks on sleep, um, especially ones that were geared towards the general population and geared towards people that were struggling with sleep, I was trying to create exactly what you were talking about, where it was this importance around sleep of just how important it really is. Because like you said, it impacts every single system of your physiology. Um, and every single goal that you might have in health and performance is going to be related to sleep in some way, shape or form. So my emphasis was really on trying to, you know, get people to focus on it and get people educated on how important it is. Um, but the more that I was coaching people and the more that I was talking about these things, um, I feel like people have heard a good amount of that already and they know how important it is. And putting my coaching hat on, what I find is a lot of people that are struggling with sleep 
you know, and we could talk more about this, it's very behavioral in nature. So, you know, especially when it's a chronic issue, a lot of the associated um, negative thoughts that people have around their sleep and their ability to sleep are what are really driving their sleep issues long term. And, you know, if you're a trainer or a coach that's listening to this, just something to be mindful of if you're leading with the facts about what happens when you do or don't sleep in terms of all these, you know, wide reaching benefits, um, you could be doing more harm than good. So, I'm glad that we can have the opportunity to speak more about the how. I try to talk less and less about the, you know, all the negative things that can happen when you don't get sleep because I just find that it perpetuates issues a little bit more. Um, and it, you know, there's no reason to to focus on it to that, you know, to that point where it could be driving the issues a little bit more. So, you know, into the how of sleep, and this is really I think important for everyone to understand if they're going to, you know, optimize their sleep, if they're going to improve their sleep, if they're going to coach someone to sleep you have two mechanisms that basically allow for sleep to occur. Um, the first is a circadian rhythm. So circadian rhythm is your internal 24 hour clock or rhythm um, that operates and coincides with the environment, the rise and, rise and fall of the sun basically. Um, sleep timing is one of the things that falls on this rhythm. Um, the thing that gets left out with circadian rhythm very often is every single aspect of your physiology falls on this rhythm as well, right? So if you were to look at a clock um, a circadian rhythm clock, you would see that many physiological processes of your body operate at a preferred time, right? Every single cell in your body, every organ system in your body has a preferred clock. So, you know, it's the idea that timing and consistency becomes incredibly important, not only for sleep, but also for a variety of other things, like when you're exercising, when you're eating, um, you find that this timing is incredibly important. And the more that you shift off of any one of these variables, you throw off the rest of those clocks throughout your body and in turn can impact your, your health pretty negatively. So the first thing is the understanding of these circadian rhythms, which again, there's a preferred time when you should be awake and you should be asleep. Um, and half of this is actually based on a genetic component, what we call a chronotype. So your chronotype is your genetic preference that you're born with. Um, and there's different chronotypes. We've all heard of morning, uh, morning larks or night owls, and there's even some other um, characterizations as well that we can we can use. But you know, understanding what your chronotype is is one component of that circadian rhythm. Understanding that some people's clock runs a little bit later, some runs a little bit earlier. Um, but the other half of that circadian circadian rhythm regulating system is these lifestyle variables. So sleep timing is one of those variables. Uh, nutrition timing, food timing is one of those variables. Uh, exercise and movement timing is one of those variables. Temperature is another one of those variables that often gets left out. And then light and darkness exposure, which is probably the biggest, um, and we can talk more about why that is, but um, those are the, the things that we can do to manipulate our circadian rhythm. So that's one mechanism that will go into how you would actually sleep and the quality of sleep that you'll get. The next thing is buildup of a set of chemicals within the brain that continue to accumulate every second that you're awake. So from the time that you wake up to the time you go to bed, you have a buildup of these chemicals in your brain, um, the most notable of which is adenosine. And we call this sleep pressure. And the more of these chemicals that are present, the more of a sleep pressure or sleep urge that you get. Um, when we talk about these two mechanisms, they operate independently of one another, right? So you have your circadian rhythm, rise and fall, right? And then you have this buildup of adenosine as well, or buildup of these chemicals as well. So they operate independently of one another. And where we get the greatest 
um, ability to not only fall asleep, but then stay asleep and get good quality sleep is where we get the highest accumulation of that sleep pressure and the lowest lull in that circadian rhythm with that preferred timing. Um, so those are the two mechanisms that go into sleep actually occurring. And then the third mechanism that I always mention that's really important to understand is what I call the antagonist to sleep. So this is the system that works against you. So this is basically, if we talk about the autonomic nervous system or the automatic nervous system, this is the sympathetic side of the nervous system, right? Um, I call this, you can call this the arousal system. And really what we find is that there's a dimmer switch here in our arousal system and sleep is the lowest point of that arousal system, right? Of that arousal switch. It's the switch completely turned off. Um, and what we find is that any bit of arousal while we're turning that knob a little bit is gonna work against not only our ability to fall asleep, but our ability to stay asleep and get really good quality sleep. So being very mindful of the things that activate your arousal system, even just a little bit can, uh, can negatively impact your sleep. Well, that's really interesting. It's, I've heard about chronotypes and I've, I've read a bit into it and it's something that really fascinates me. And we could kind of go into that a little bit more if that's okay, Nick, with you mentioning about people have these different chronotypes, whether they're a morning lark or a night owl and how individuals can kind of set up their lifestyle to match that chronotype, for example. I think it'd be good to just touch on that a little bit more when you mentioned about when they eat, when they train and how this can have such an impact going into the third point you mentioned there, talking about the sympathetic nervous system and the fight or flight mode and how that can impact just by simply when you exercise or when you eat, how that can really disrupt everything. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, firstly with the, with the chronotypes, the, the best char uh, char characterization of these or categorization of these comes from Dr. Michael Bryce. Um, he wrote a book called The Power of When, and he basically put these chronotypes into four categories. Um, the first is a lion, and that would be similar to the morning lark. These are your early risers, right? Their clock runs a lot earlier. On the other extreme, we have what we call a wolf, right? So they're your you know, night owl type. Their clock runs a lot later. Then we have bears who make up around half of the population. They're the, they're the more of a majority. And they tend to go with the rise and fall of the sun. So they're somewhere in the middle of those extremes. Um, and then a fourth category where, you know, it was trying to find a, a characterization for those who were really struggling with sleep and really didn't fit into either uh, or any of those other chronotypes was the dolphin chronotype. And the dolphin chronotype is making up about 10% of the population. And these are those who really deal with a lot of anxiety um, around their sleep. Um, they tend to be those who deal with more insomnia-based issues. doesn't mean that it, all hope is lost for them. It's just, you know, with regard to certain stress management techniques, we have to give more attention to, um, to that chronotype. So, you know, I think this is a good place to start in terms of understanding of your own chronotype. So there's some resources out there that can help you determine um, if we're going to use the example of Dr. Michael Bryce and those four animals, um, there's the power of when quiz.com. So we could definitely link that in the, the show notes. And it's a quiz that you take. It takes about five, 10 minutes. You ask, they ask some lifestyle questions, what some of your preferences are, and then it helps determine what your chronotype actually is. If you're, if you're unsure, I, I think for a lot of people, it's pretty intuitive if you're on one end of the extreme as the other, right? Um, the thing to note with those extremes, though, is the, the actual genetic differences between your chronotypes is not as vast as people think it is. So what I mean by that is 
there's not a chronotype that has you in bed at 7 p.m. versus one that has you in bed at two or three o'clock in the morning. Um, the actual difference from the lion and the, the wolf is really about three hours, um, maybe a little bit more, but no more than that, right? Where um, a lot of times, you know, people who are staying up even later than that, they might be using the excuse of I'm a wolf chronotype, but they're really just masquerading poor sleep habits and poor sleep prioritization that's having them in bed, um, in bed later. So the first step, like I said, is understanding these chronotypes, figuring out what you are, what chronotype you are. And then you know, you could really go down the rabbit hole of based off of these chronotypes, what you do. Like, for example, Dr. Michael Bryce in his book, he'll talk about a lot of the things that there's an optimal time for. When you should have a cup of coffee, when you can ask for a raise, when's the optimal time to have sex, when is the optimal time to go for a run, when is the optimal time to do just about anything. And I think, and what I've found in my coaching is that too much structure in that way tends to deter people from that approach, right? We we want structure, we want routine, um, and we want to optimize the big variables. But I think trying to optimize too many things is, is going to work against us. I will say, you know, from a work performance standpoint or a sports performance standpoint, knowing when your optimal time to perform is, is huge, right? So let's, you know, say you're a, a lion chronotype. You should be scheduling your productive work in the first part of the day or even the first few hours of the day, if possible. And, you know, the opposite goes for if you're a wolf chronotype. And I think, you know, that works in whether it's, you know, day-to-day -day performance, sports performance. I think, you know, you have to really try to stick to that as much as, as possible. Um, so that's the, the kind of first part in the process. And then it's trying to, like you mentioned, trying to structure um, your life in a way where you can align those big variables. So when I talked about those circadian regulating variables, those five things, um, those are the things that we really should try and align. If we're trying to prioritize optimal health, optimal performance, optimal wellness, we should try and align those things as much as possible. So what, what that means is we're prioritizing the right daylight exposure and darkness and trying to keep them consistent. So once you figure out a schedule that actually works for you of like, all right, great, this is when I know I can get daylight, this is when I can prioritize darkness, um, then I go to the next variable of nutrition, this is my time restricted window with which I'm gonna eat, and I know that I can do from 10 to eight every single day, and I know that is repeatable for me based on my schedule. Um, same goes for exercise. I know that I can consistently exercise at this time. Um, you know, once you start to figure that out based on your schedule, then it's keeping the variables within that as consistent as possible, right? So say your restricted eating window is from 10 to eight, try to keep the times that you're eating consistent. Um, and there's been plenty of studies here that have worked this out where, you know, uh, a good, very another good resource to look into is Dr. Sachin Panda, who talks a lot about circadian rhythms. He talks a lot about time-restricted eating and time-restricted feeding. He's a big advocate for this. And in his lab, they've done some studies where they've taken groups of people, they've been the same body type, the same level of obesity, some of the same markers. They've tried to control for all other variables. They were given basically the same diet where they really weren't, you know, controlling very much for quality of what they were eating. Um, it wasn't a very, you know, nutrient dense um, diet. Um, but the only variable that was different was the window within which they were eating, where one group was eating within a 14-hour window, and the other group was eating within a 10-hour window. Um, and because of the fact that that 10-hour window, they were condensing, obviously, and they were keeping their times consistent, we pretty much saw every aspect of body composition and metabolic health improve, 
right? So everything from, you know, waste to cholesterol to, you know, you name it, every aspect of, of what you would want to see improve, improve just by condensing that eating window. Really, really, really interesting. I've, I've read a lot into the time-restricted feeding and yeah, it's something that I've kind of experimented with some of my clients and seen great success just by kind of going into looking into their lifestyle and their routine. And, and obviously this all comes down to as well, the people's routine in general and when they're waking up for work, when they're finishing work and when they're going to bed and things like that. And you can kind of get a better idea and understanding of that. I've had clients that wake up in the morning and I'll simply ask them, are you hungry in the morning? And a lot of people might be like myself. I'm not actually that hungry in the morning. But when it gets to mid-morning, I'm ready for that first meal, essentially. Um, and later, same with the evening as well. Like going into later in the evening, I am so not productive in the slightest whatsoever and for even for training i think even i notice even after about 2 p.m my mood for training is just non-existent um but when it comes to like 11 a.m 10 a.m even i am all guns blazing i'm ready to go and it's just kind of helping people i guess understand these things and take them into consideration if they are somebody who doesn't really know when to train and they feel a little bit sporadic with the training or with when they eat for example it's not it's kind of taking a little bit of a back seat i guess and looking into these things that we're talking about and actually looking into their own routine asking themselves these questions and sure. kind of linking it to themselves because I've, I've met so many people that um come to come to see me where they'll say i do not really want to train after work and i say to them that is totally fine. Let's find Absolutely. a window when you actually want to train where you can perform the best. I actually had a conversation with a client this morning and she said to me, she wakes up, she basically trains with me at about 6.30 a.m. in the morning. Obviously, with, with recent and current circumstances, that's not the case. And she, she will still get up and she will still be itching to train. But what she's been doing is basically delaying her training till like nine, 10 o'clock. And the effect that has had on her motivation and desire to train has been crazy. And it's, and she, she really, she really doesn't want to train at those times, but pulling it back to that window when she's used to training or she even wants to train, she feels like she wants to train has seen a significant difference in uh, adherence to actually participating in exercise. So it's, yeah. I mean, it's exactly that. I mean, you know, you always you can always say, I mean, the best, the best routine and the best schedule is one that you can actually adhere to and one you can actually stick to and, and stick with long term. So, you know, I mean, I always get like the big pushback from people with, with this is, you know, well, I have, I have life, I have work timing, I have this, I can't, I can't shift. And, and it's always a give and take. It's, you know, with, with any of these things, it's, I mean, what I find is people are so unregimented in their timing of these things. Like it's such a, you know, back to Sachin Panda, he actually did a study within his app where they had a bunch of people and they had them take pictures of their food and it was logged within the app. So they got an idea, you know, of what they were eating and when they were eating. So they just had it logged kind of around this clock of when people were eating. People love to take pictures of their food for whatever reason. So they got a lot of people to do it. But, um, you know, what they found was it was just all over the map. There was no consistency. Um, the, the eating window was within 18 hours a day. Um, and it was just from day to day, week to week, there was no consistency. And you find the same thing with a lot of other variables. So, you know, I always find, I always tell people, and for most, because there's such an unregimented approach to all these things that 
there's so much gain uh, ground to be gained from just understanding, like you said, how important the timing is and just pick one or two variables to start and start to line them up a little bit better with some consistency. And you'd be amazed at the, the results that you can have and how it, how it can impact your sleep. Obviously we're in the context of talking about sleep. Um, you know, sleep timing is a huge, huge piece of that. Obviously the big way that people screw this up is the sleeping in on the weekends. Um, and I know it feels good in the short term, and I know it seems counterintuitive that if you have the ability to sleep, you should be able to sleep more, right? Because sleep is good. Um, but because that circadian rhythm is one of those regulating mechanisms that's not only important for sleep, but overall health, you know, you have to play the long game. And I think playing the long game for health, um, sleep health, and just health in general, I think we have to be keeping it consistent where, you know, pick a time, you know, that you have to wake up for work that you can keep consistent on the weekends within, you know, 30, 45 minutes at the most. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people do that where they wake up for work at 7 a.m., for example, and then go to bed at 10 in the week. And it comes to the weekend, they're staying in bed till 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, going to bed at 1, 2 a.m. Obviously, it happens every now and again if you're going out and things like that. But it's it's understanding that regimen is is really the key to to all these things. And if you are talking about the circadian rhythm and how it wants to be in a place of kind of homeostasis, should we say, where sure. it doesn't want to be disrupted or changed for, for somewhat. So it's, it's playing everything and setting everything out that kind of matches the way of doing things that you're so used to doing during the week and how that can have a massive impact on everything if it becomes changed at the weekend when you decide to watch Netflix for an extra six hours a night. Yeah. I mean, the best way to relate this is, you know, I always use this example with, with clients, you know, they say you're sleeping in two hours later or three hours later on the weekend. You know, I always liken it to the impact that this really has on you is I'm sure we've all experienced jet lag. If I flew from here to you or you flew from, from me, uh, from, or vice versa, we'd feel like crap. Right. And there's an adjustment period really at, at, we've all experienced that feeling of jet lag where it's not just tired. Everything is off. Our ability to exercise is off. Every, every facet of our well-being is, is off a little bit, right? Even if sometimes just an hour time difference, that's essentially what you're doing by sleeping in on the weekends. You're inducing jet lag to yourself and to every facet of your body um, voluntarily every week. And then having to try and re hit the reset button every Monday um, and reset your clock. Um, again, you know, it's just the understanding that by influencing one aspect of this clock, you influence all of them, right? So if we take, you know, back to why I talked about light being that incredibly powerful regulator is light is arguably the most important circadian rhythm regulator because of the fact that we talked about there's these clocks all throughout your body in every cell, every organ system, every tissue. Um, there is a master clock that speaks to the rest of these clocks and it's located within the brain, a small cluster of cells. Um, and what we have found is that there are cells within the eye, they're called melanopsin cells, that communicate to this cluster of cells that we call the master clock, and they are perceiving light. So these melanopsin cells take in light, right, which directly communicate to this cluster of cells, this master clock. And then this master clock is basically providing those little shifts and in the clocks of everywhere else throughout your periphery, everywhere else in your body. So when we disrupt the light trigger, we really have the biggest disruptive impact. 
Um, but on the opposite side of that, when we get it right and we get the right amount of it, um, we're really enhancing our circadian rhythm to the greatest possible possible way. So, um, and we can start to see how you know this would be linked to a lot of negative health outcomes, negative performance outcomes, because you know what we should be doing from a light perspective and darkness perspective is pretty much the complete opposite of what we do in modern society, right? Where we don't get any light during the day. We're inside in artificial lighting pretty much all day. Um, and then at night, we're bathed in artificial lighting as well and not really getting any cues of darkness, any gradual cues for darkness. Um, very often bedrooms have too many lights from a laptop or a TV somewhere, um, light streaking in from the window. So, you know, we can see this, how this can start to impact really all other aspects of your of your health and your well-being. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to Manchester, Nick, but we 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 have darkness all the time, especially in, especially in winter. So you can understand why a lot of people um, have sleep issues when sure. these these things are going on and the environment we live in and the the countries we live in. Obviously, it all it differs it differs throughout. Um, when sure. you mentioned about the the light and the sleep, the the performance aspects of things, there, Nick, what is the how much of an effect can this exposure to or lack of exposure to sunlight and this artificial light, how can that play havoc with our sleep in general? And what actually happens to get a good quality night's sleep when this is kind of impacted through this lifestyle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like we talked about because it's the fact of it, its ability to influence the master clock. It influences other clocks, some of which are ones that influ are influencing sleep timing. So, you know, when we talk about the things that operate on this clock, one of the things that operate on this clock are hormones, right? The rise and fall of hormones. And, you know, when we talk about sleep, notably, we're talking about two hormones, two hormones that most people have probably heard of, melatonin being the hormone of darkness and sleep, right? This signals the timing for sleep. It doesn't participate in sleep itself. It just signals the timing for when you actually sleep. And on the opposite side of that, we have cortisol. So in an ideal world where circadian rhythm is healthy and aligned, we get a rise of melatonin at night, right before bed, and a decrease in our cortisol levels, right? And then in the morning, we see the complete opposite of that, where melatonin levels have plummeted throughout the night and cortisol elevates in the morning to help us wake up naturally without needing caffeine. Um, anything that we do that disrupts our clock and our rhythm, light being the one that can probably have the greatest and most profound impact at doing that because of that master clock, we shift the clock back a little, a little bit and we shift the hormone rise and fall back as well, where we really throw things awry. So, you know, if we take studies, for example, that have been done with screen time, right, where, you know, someone was on an iPad right before bed, um, the blue light is also the most disruptive to that signal of those melanopsin cells in the eye. Those melanopsin cells are the most, dis, uh, most sensitive to blue light. What we find is that we actually push the release of melatonin back by about two, three hours, and we decrease the actual amount of melatonin by about 15%. So not only are we getting less of a signal and less concentration of that hormone, but now we've actually changed the schedule of when that hormone is actually released. So you know we can start to see how each variable, like I said, anything that has the ability to shift the clock is gonna work against you. And light just happens to be the, you know, the thing that can have the greatest impact to, to do that, you know? 
Yeah, you mentioned before about jet lag. That's I've I've read that myself about the melatonin and like the delayed onset of melatonin coming on when you do stimulate yourself before bed. And this is why we have kind of a delayed onset of melatonin happening. So you feel like you're wired, you, you can't go to sleep, you're tossing and turning in bed. And then when the morning comes, this cortisol should be on the rise. However, it's through the floor. And that's why a lot of people have that morning slump essentially and they feel like they can't get out of bed simply because they've disrupted the the clock due to their lifestyle habits before bedtime exactly yeah i mean you know obviously jet lag is the big thing that that people talk about in in terms of you know shifting the clock but you know much more common and much more of a problem is social jet lag right where people just aren't prioritizing their routines to keep these things consistent and, you know, obviously the big component of social jet lag is like we talked about the sleeping in on the weekend. So, you know, it's, it's self, like I say, it's self-induced jet lag. So um, it's a big, it's a big, big contributor for sure. I just want to ask you, uh, Nick, before we jump into some other questions about sleep and its impacts on other things physiologically, how do you get people to adhere to this information when you speak to your clients? Because I've always found and I'm sure a lot of trainers who listen to this can testify when we yeah. do give sleep tips or we do tell the client how important sleep is. I know you mentioned before about things maybe not being helpful when you talk about the negative implications of sleep. Mm. How do you get clients to adhere to sleep hygiene, just like you would get clients to adhere to a diet or adhere to a training protocol? Yeah. So I think the first thing, you know, especially from the lens of like, if you're a trainer or a coach listening is, you know, a lot of times why clients aren't pr prioritizing sleep is because we're not prioritizing sleep enough. Um, and this is kind of what we talked about at the beginning where I've found this when you talk to trainers and coaches that, that, you know, if I ask a trainer, how much of, how much of their intake process includes sleep or what are the components of their intake process that talk about sleep and learning about the client's sleep habits and behaviors and sleep background, um, you know, the vast majority, it's a very, very, very small percentage where they might just be asking about, you know, sleep duration, or, um, you know, maybe how the person feels subjectively about their sleep, and then that's it. Um, but the next layer to that, you know, once the trainer and coach has really prioritized it, because if we're prioritizing it in our process, you know, the, the client will know that it's that it's important, right? If we're spending 75 and 80% of our time on movement interventions and things that we're giving them there, that's going to be where we're where we're focusing and where they're focusing. So the first thing comes from an actual shift and how much you're focusing on it in your coaching and how much you're giving to them. Um, the next thing is, like we said, being mindful of the things that you're actually giving to them, where I have found, especially recently, and I've shifted this a lot, I find that the fear-inducing um, aspects to this are not always the best, right? Because if that was the case, um, and this is just overall behavior change, I think, if that was the case, you know, everybody knows that poor lifestyle habits lead to poor health, right? I don't think there's any human being on the earth. They may not know sleep specifically how much it impacts. They might not even know nutritionally specific, like all of the specifics, but they know that if you sleep poorly and your diet is not aligned and you don't exercise, you typically aren't going to live a very long and healthy life. I think, you know, 99.9% .9 of people know that, but we're all still in business as coaches because people don't actually do it. So, you know, I think it's, it's kind of comes back to the same elements of behavior change 101. Instead of just telling them that these things are important, you have to relate it to the person. This comes down to understanding that human being first. So, you know, asking open-ended questions that allow you to 
understand the person and the same applies to sleep. So, and this can go for a person for themselves, right? Asking open-ended questions about yourself of, you know, instead of, am I happy with my sleep? It's, you know, what, um, what has my sleep routine been like, or what has my sleep health been like? So one of the things that I find very impactful is, and I often do this with clients is when you've defined your goals and when you've defined what your goals are, really taking the time to look deep within and figure out the why behind those goals, right? Why is that goal ultimately important to you? Um, like just as an example, you know, the difference between I want to lose 10 pounds because, um, you know, I just think I should, and I know that it's good for my health versus I want to lose 10 pounds because I want to be more attractive to my spouse. That's a big difference. And the motivation that's tied in with that is very different. Um, the thing from that is you have to tie sleep specifically to that goal and to that deep rooted importance. Um, and the nice thing is because like we talked about at the onset, because sleep pretty much influences every facet of your health and your well-being, regardless of what that goal is or what that deep rooted motivation is, even if that goal is to be a better person, right? We've all experienced when we're not sleeping well, we're short with the people that we love, right? We don't have the same patience. We don't have the same empathy. We're just a different, we're almost a different person. So regardless of what the goal and regardless of what's ultimately important to you, I usually can find a way to tie sleep directly to that. And I find that that has a greater um, impact in terms of motivation and adherence to sticking to um, stick into a program. And we can certainly talk about like, just from a general behavior change standpoint, some of the other things that I found that have, you know, been really impactful things like vision boards and, um, and things along those lines that I've found to be really helpful for people as well. But I think, um, in that way, it's, it's just tying sleep to what's ultimately important to you and what's, what drives you. And one more point on the previous thing that we were talking about, um, in terms of adherence or sticking to these things, something I often do with clients is, you know, outside of even just the people who are struggling with sleep, you know, there's a large majority of people who, like we talked about, are just not getting optimal sleep. Their new baseline has become set a lot lower where they've forgotten what it's like to really function at optimal sleep, where they don't need caffeine, they don't need naps, they have the ability to focus. So sometimes I'll go from the approach of, look, are you 100% happy with all of these elements? Are you 100% happy with your energy levels, your mood, your ability to focus? X, Y, and Z, these things that are important for you to perform at work and perform with your family. And if the answer is no, which nine times out of 10 it is, great, give me three weeks or two weeks or even less to implement these one, two, three things with regards to your sleep. And if you don't feel better, great, I'll never mention sleep again. But we start to check some of these things off and I just start very gradual, very progressive and results are addictive. People are tie in with the results that they get. And when they start to feel better, all those subjective things that matter and they can focus more and their energy is higher, those things really drive you to stick with it. Like, wow, this is really the missing link. This is really what's been, you know, impacting me or, or really been affecting me. So I find that that's very effective as well. I think a really good point to go into now from here, Nick, is the impacts that a lack of sleep can have on people in terms of making life more difficult for them if their goal is weight loss and how sleep deprivation can cause an increase in appetite, its impacts on even metabolism and things like that. Into the nutrition side of things, um, there I would argue that sleep is the foundation for body composition for, for a few different reasons. Um, if whether the goal is actual weight loss, whether the goal is increasing 
you know, muscle mass versus body fat percentage, sleep plays into every single mechanism. So firstly, um, sleep actually, and all these things have been well worked out in research. The first thing is sleep impacts the actual amount of calories that you take in. So we know energy balances everything. We know calories in versus calories out is a huge determinant in terms of, of weight loss. We find that when you are even mildly sleep deprived, you are taking in pretty significant amount more calories, up to 500, 607 more calories a day. And I think we've all experienced this in some ways where our cravings are a little bit higher and we kind of eat different things. So the next thing is that it actually impacts your decision-making around those calories. We tend to um, make poor decisions when we're sleep deprived all around, but also around our food where we tend to gravitate towards simple sugars and grains um, when we're sleep deprived. Again, sleep deprivation is not you stayed up all night. I'm talking very mild sleep deprivation of even you know missing out on an hour of good quality sleep where we start to see these impacts and cravings go up. Um, and part of the reason for that is that we see an imbalance, again, back to hormones, we see an imbalance in hormones that is thrown off by improper sleep as well, where when you're even mildly sleep deprived, we see increase of a hormone called um, uh, ghrelin, which signals for hunger, right? And then we see a decrease on the opposite side of a hormone that signals satiety and fullness, which is leptin. So we see it on both ends, it's double-edged sword, where the hormone that tells you hungry, eat more, increases. And the one that tells you you're full and satiated goes, goes down. So we can start to see why we would actually be taking in more, more calories. And then the other aspect which is probably even the most important is there's been studies that have shown what your body actually preferentially does with the calories that you take in, where, you know, the most significant study that was done was looking at an individual sleeping five and a half hours versus an individual sleeping eight and a half hours. And when we talk about five and a half hours, most people would deem that as all, not all that bad, right? That would be pretty norm for them if they're getting that consistently. And what we found was a complete flip-flop in what you would want, where the individual that had slept eight and a half hours was gaining significantly more muscle. The calories intake was the same, I should point out, for both of these groups. But the amount of muscle and lean body mass that was being added um, for the individual sleeping eight and a half hours was much higher. And the body fat percentage was much lower. And then the complete opposite, obviously, for that individual who was sleeping five and a half hours. So, you know, what ends up happening is even mild sleep deprivation puts your body into um, basically a starvation type of mode and a fight or flight type of mode where it's just not prioritizing the calories in any kind of way that would be from a body composition standpoint. It's again, it's survival. So it's almost it's prioritized with storing fat for long term um, survival and trying to just get through this this period of you not sleeping well. So it's not prioritized with building muscle or anything else that you would want to do from a body composition standpoint. So again, just from every angle of this, no matter how you look at it, um, it's, it's really impacting your, your metabolism, body composition. It goes back to mentioning what you said before, and you said the impacts that it can have simply on your energy. And we we look at it like that, that they're the days where you don't want to get up to go to the gym. They're your days where you don't want to exercise, but you have this urge to eat all the food in the world. And, and it's going, it sure. does come down to this, what you mentioned there, this survival, what the body actually wants. The body, when it's feeling a lack of energy, the body wants to consume energy to return back to, like we've mentioned before, homeostasis as, as per se. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 a very similar threat to your system as actually as actually being being starved. So, a lot of people don't really 
kind of understand the why's behind things I I find with people. They they often say things like, I'm really hungry today or I can't stop reaching for the biscuit tin. I'm, I'm, my mood's horrendous. I have no motivation to train. And half of the time, a big part of it could be looking into what we're speaking about today, could be looking into the sleep and actually understanding the impacts that these these things can have on people and it's not because they're a bad human being because they are wanting to eat it's because they've had this disruption physiology and this ultimately this disruption with the circadian rhythm that has really caused these feelings to emerge when you spoke about leptin and ghrelin this hunger hormone rising leptin decreasing and it's taking people away from that stable balance of both hormones and really kicking in the the ghrelin which is a nightmare hormone for people that want to lose body fat and keep it off. And this is, you know, this is exactly why I, you know, I talked about earlier, this is why I always check this box first, because I never want people to get to that point because it's a motivation killer and it's a drive killer and it's a progress killer. Um, so this is why I check this box of sleep first. And, you know, whether you're a trainer or a coach listening to make sure you're checking that box or just an individual who's working towards your goals, you have to look into this and in this in the same way that you look at, all right, great. I talked about the people who are doing all the right things, exercise and nutrition wise. You have to be doing all the right things from a sleep perspective as well. And you want to do that right at the onset. You want to make sure nothing slips through the cracks there. So you don't get to a point where you've been doing a program for six or eight weeks where, again, you were seemingly doing all the right things from, you know, you were exercising three, four times a week. You know, you were doing everything else consistently. You were doing cardio on your own. Um, your, your nutrition was a thousand times better than it was but you're still having low energy and you're still not getting the results you want, you know, and then it's so disheartening when you get to that point. And if you're a client or a coach, you know, it's very difficult to pull someone out of being in that state where they've lost all confidence in the system and in their ability to do these things. And as an individual, when you get to that point, it's disheartening to have stick stuck with a program, even if you stuck to elements of that program and for that long and it wasn't successful. So, you know, because we've understood now that sleep is so impactful, make sure you check the box at the beginning. And the other thing that I always tell people is the nice thing about sleep that works to my advantage is of all the things that we have to change, sleep is the nicest one. I mean, who doesn't want a mm -hmm. good night of sleep, right? Like that's an easy place to start for people to be like, great, I would love to get better sleep. And you know, I know I feel better and sleeping is great. Um, as opposed to obviously they're going to have to exercise and obviously they're going to have to dial in on their nutrition as well. But those things are a lot harder to change and, you know, to get yourself motivated and get up to go to the gym um, versus, you know, you know, completely overhauling your diet or even making small changes to your diet. You know, sleep is the easy one to, you know, and the most pleasant one to actually change. So you just want to make sure that's not that thing that's holding you back and slipping through the cracks. Yeah. Unfortunately, what a lot of people do when they, when they hit this plateau, they basically look to exercise more or drop the calories even more. And obviously if they are being adherent with a caloric amount that's been set them and they are participating in the exercise that's been prescribed, once they tick these boxes and they tick them and they're doing them and they're keeping up with that routine. And like you mentioned, they are still feeling a certain way. What they tend to do is add more stress onto 100%. themselves. So they'll get out and they'll do more exercise they'll, they'll yeah. drop the calories even further when it could be something like sleep and lightly or it probably is from what we've discussed today that they For really sure. need to hone in on, which won't feel like so much of a 
a negative thing. Does dropping calories further and exercising more for somebody that's already caloric restricted is bloody horrible. So if we can give them more sleep and give them more of something, it's going to have profound impacts. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, overtraining. I always tell people overtraining is a real thing. And, you know, the amount of high intensity things that are out there and people always think more is better and they always think higher intensity is better. Mm -hmm. And there's just so many things of that that are out there. And I always tell people you have to, I always educate people on the autonomic nervous system. So they understand that balance because I always tell people things operate through the same central machinery. And I think this is a concept that people don't understand as much of you know, people view because exercise is a good thing. People don't view exercise as being a stressor or view exercise as being something that can add to, you know, the, the load, a cumulative load of stress. So I always tell people, you know, exercise and even mental stress, it all operates through the same central machinery. And it's only as good as you're able to actually recover from. So the adaptation comes from your actual ability to recover and come back to the other side. And the ultimate parasympathetic or recovery activity is sleep. And if you are not sleeping, I don't care how many regeneration things you're doing, how much cryo you're doing, how much massage you're doing, how much foam rolling you're doing, how much breath work you're doing. If you are not sleeping, you are not resetting your autonomic nervous system. And there will be constant, you know, I use the water analogy where, you know, that glass of water overfills with stress. And once you get in that state of overtraining, it is so hard to pull yourself out of. So, you know, you want to avoid at all costs getting to that point of being overtrained and the, the easiest and most effective way to reset and empty that glass of water of stress is sleep and optimal sleep. I'm glad you mentioned that, Nick, because that's something that I always say to people as well, but especially individuals who have this mindset of more, more, more. And I get this with a lot of clients that I work with, and I'm sure you can testify to this, especially kind of successful individuals who have this mentality of, I don't need, I don't need no sleep. I'm, I work well doing four hours a night sleep and they're very kind of goal driven with their job and it's all guns blazing. They're the ones that kind of need this information more than anybody, but getting them to actually do it with their personality, I found has become very, very difficult where I sometimes say to them, exercise is great, but exercise is not great if it's affecting this, it's affecting your sleep and it's affecting your recovery because that is ultimately where the magic happens. For sure. And I, I get that a lot too. So I work with a lot of uh, a lot of people in the corporate wellness space. Like, so a lot of people who are in the corporate world and, and that's where the mindset that you're just, ex, you know, explaining is really the worst and, and really, you know, just way too prevalent. Um, and I always relate it to, you know, back to the things that are important to people. So, you know, if you're in the working with someone in the corporate world, or if you're in the corporate world, it's KPIs, right? What are your key performance indicators of, you know, you know, how often you're out sick versus your productivity levels versus your collaboration levels and all these things, you know, that affect the bottom line of, you know, again, I go back to give me three weeks. Like, I know you're gung ho. I know you're this, but give me three weeks. And if your KPIs don't improve and if your satisfaction and your ability to do those things doesn't improve money back guarantee, fine. I'll never mention it again, but if we really check those box, they're, they're going to see the improvement and then they're going to see the value. So it's just connecting it to, you know, what's ultimately important to the individual. Yeah. I like the KPI analogy. That's something that I set with a lot of my clients as well, setting them in place so we can actually get closer to what we want to achieve ultimately. And obviously sleep's a big one that you will put in there. I think going, going off that now, Nick, I think we've 
touched upon a lot of stuff, how it can affect body composition, how it can affect our performance, speaking about it in all around health and a little bit of the physiology behind sleep. I think it'd be good now to go into some of the strategies that you use and the approaches that you use. I know you have a simple sleep six approach that you use and you teach as well. That'd be really, really good to go into to actually give people some actual takeaways now now they know all these things that um negative implications of bad sleep what it can do to us and how it can kind of drive things to go in the wrong way yeah i think the most important thing here and why i coach it up and why i have this program and why i've created it in this way is having a set system of principles and hierarchy and prioritization so if you google sleep tips there's a lot of things out there right you can find on just about every you know news platform and every health magazine there's a list of the top 10 sleep tips or the top five sleep tips, but they don't provide any context to you and your situation and where you should start, um, what could be the most impactful. So, you know, I always, again, go back to the system, having systems of set principles. So the number one place that we always have to start, the foundational pillar to this is behaviors, sleep behaviors. Um, and there's a few different categorizations here, some of which we've kind of talked about already. Um, the first is just the, the simple prioritization. Take an honest look and assessment. Are you prioritizing sleep in your life right now? And hopefully based on some of the things that we talked about today, you'll shift that mindset. Because if we're not prioritizing it and we haven't connected it to our why, our goals, it's ultimately going to be more, more difficult, right? So I think it's just an, a practical and very important thing to do regardless of what your goal is, even if we're not talking about sleep, to really define the why behind your goals, make those goals very intrinsic in nature. Um, the, the next piece to the behaviors is your perceptions around sleep. Um, and what I find is that people have a lot of myths and misconceptions here and negative, um, just negative thoughts all around, especially if you've been struggling with sleep. You know, some of the common things that I will, will get from people are, you know, I'll never, you know, I'll never be able to sleep again. You know, if I don't get eight hours, I won't be able to function tomorrow. And, you know, just all these dramatizations that, that people have. So, Take the time to really define these things and be honest with those things that are out there. And as seemingly simple and silly as it is, restructure those things in a positive way. Rewrite them in a positive way. It's absolutely profound when you actually take the time to do that um, and restructure them in a, just a positive light in some way, right? Writing them out, saying them, having them interjected into conversation with people. Because if we have these negative thoughts, they perpetuate everything else. They drive our autonomic nervous system. They drive our motivation. They drive everything else. So you have to address those underlying thoughts that you have. Um, the next thing, the last thing I'll talk about with the behavior side of things is something very, very powerful. That's something that a lot of people really screw up. It's what I call stimulus control. So stimulus control is essentially association. Um, you basically want your bed and bedroom to be as powerful of a trigger and association for sleep and only sleep as possible. And the more things that you do in your bed and bedroom that are not sleep, the more you perpetuate negative habits um, around your sleep. So I find this time and time again where people are doing entirely too many things. They're doing work in bed. They're doing, you know, even reading in bed. They're you know, they're cleaning right before bed. They're just doing too many things in their bedroom that are not actually sleep. The brain is very associative, especially around your sleep. So, you know, the, the keeping your bed and bedroom as powerful of a shrine in place for only sleep, only sleep and sex, the only things you should be doing in the, the bedroom. Um, I find that that drives 
um, a lot of success. The other element of stimulus control is, again, because we don't want negative associations to form is, you know, if you are unable to sleep in any way, whether it's falling asleep or waking up in the middle of the night and you cannot fall back asleep, do not stay in bed for more than 10, 15 minutes. Um, as counterintuitive as that sounds, you cannot will yourself to better sleep. And the longer you lay there and try harder, again, arousal system, right? We're turning that knob up, not going to work. And now we've created an association of you being in bed and being awake. And this is where we start to see some of the patterns of like chronic insomnia, chronic unable to sleep and waking up in the middle of the night start to really perpetuate. So if you're unable to sleep, you know, I always use the analogy of nutrition, right? So if you go to lie in bed at night and you are not sleepy and you can't fall asleep, get out of bed and come back when you're sleepy. I use the analogy of nutrition. You wouldn't just go and sit at the dining room table and wait to get hungry, right? You go and you sit and you eat when you're hungry. Same applies for sleep. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, um, do, do not lie there for more than 10, 15 minutes. Get out of bed, do something low level, um, you know, read under low light, something like that, maybe some breath work and then come back um, when you're very sleepy again. Um, the next pillar after the behaviors is something that we definitely talked, you know, quite a bit about, but incredibly important is the circadian rhythm. I call it circadian rhythm entrainment. So go to the power of figure out what your chronotype is, start to understand what some of those preferences are with regards to that chronotype, and then try and align the big five as much as you can based on your life. Don't try and change and overhaul everything at once, but try to align as many of those five things as you can. Those five things being nutrition and food timing, exercise and movement timing, light and darkness, temperature, and sleep timing, right? The time you go to bed and the time that you wake up. Um, the next layer is the autonomic nervous system. So this comes down to just stress management or stress mitigation. And this is just has to be what works for you and fits well and resonates with you. I found that the ones most successful around sleep are breath work and journaling. Um, and by journaling, I really just mean brain dump. So just writing down on a piece of paper, thoughts, worries, um, to do's. There's something about having those things actually written down on paper that, you know, makes a tremendous, uh, tremendous impact. Unfortunately, when we do the majority of our thinking is when our head hits the pillow, right? That's the only time we can download the day. But back to that arousal system, if we're thinking about our day and thinking about the things we need to do, we're turning that knob up entirely too much. So just the idea of having things written down on paper um, makes a big difference, you know, and then, you know, next pillar and kind of last thing I, I guess I would leave with is the things that people probably already know that are lifestyle based um, technology, try to limit the screen time and try to limit blue light at least in the half hour to an hour before bed. Um, and if you have to absolutely be on email or be on something like that, wear a blue blocking glasses, you can get them on Amazon really cheap. Um, caffeine would be the last thing I would talk about just from a lifestyle perspective, limit the actual intake of ca caffeine per day to no more than around 250 milligrams. So this is about like a cup and a half or even a little less. Um, and try to limit your timing of caffeine. People don't realize how long caffeine stays in your system. So try to limit it to, you know, if your bedtime is 10 or 11, try to not have caffeine after like noon, one o'clock if possible. You mentioned with the behavior stuff, Nick, there, which I wanted to kind of touch upon, if that's okay. Um, you mentioned about waking up in the middle of the night. And I know yeah. that is something that is extremely common with lots of people where they'll go to the bathroom 
for we in the middle of the night or they'll go to the bathroom numerous times throughout the night or even just being wide awake like you mentioned what is that that causes those things to occur for for many people um, so it, it can, uh, with a lot of things, it could be like chicken or the egg of, of really, sometimes it's just disrupting your rhythms in general that impacts your waking up in the middle of the night where like certain physiological functions are disrupted. When we talk about just waking up in the middle of the night to, to pee, I usually find that this is like an obvious solution um, where it's usually just drinking too much water before bed. And it obviously is going to, you know, we all are digesting and processing things while we're sleeping. Um, it's just, if you have too much, it becomes an overwhelming feeling where it actually pulls you and wakes you out of your sleep. So I find that from like the standpoint of actually waking up, it's usually, um, it's usually something pretty simple like that in terms of having to wake up to pee. Um, but from a lot of the other things and a lot of the other reasons why, you know, you can wake up in the middle of the night, I usually just find that it's, it just comes down to the same things of poor sleep hygiene, poor sleep routines that, um, that for people manifest in different ways. So, you know, having what we call a high sleep debt built up or having your circadian rhythm disrupted or any of these things just affects people differently, right? It affects everyone a little bit differently where for some people it's, you know, the inability to fall asleep. For some, it just really fragments their sleep. Um, you know, you can look into things like uh, like alcohol as well. Alcohol fragments your sleep quite a bit. THC fragments your sleep quite a bit where you're getting these mini awakenings. Um, the other thing is once this has happened once or twice, and it does happen to everyone, I come back to that stimulus control of don't let it become a habit because then it becomes this association of where your brain is used to not only waking up, but being awake. We go through our sleep stages every 90 minutes. And after every 90 minutes, we actually do get a brief period of awakening. Usually most of us just don't remember it or don't even realize. Um, it's when we kind of stay, stay awake. So we don't want to let that become um, perpetual. Uh, the other thing that I find is common too is temperature regulation is a big thing that gets left out. So, you know, very often temperature has the ability to fragment your sleep and disrupt your sleep quality in the middle of the night as well, um, as well as your ability to fall asleep. So you definitely want a temperature drop um, right before you bed, right before you fall asleep. You need your body to drop a degree, um, a degree or two Fahrenheit. Um, in order to really initiate sleep and then to stay asleep and maintain good quality sleep, you also need temperature to stay relatively low as well. And this is where, you know, things like the bed jet or chili pad can certainly come into play um, where you can actually regulate temperature throughout the night. So if you find that you're waking up in the middle of the night uh, cold, you can actually have it where the temperature lowers down a little bit to start sleep. And then it actually raises up a little bit in the middle of the night so that you're not waking up cold. So, you know, long winded way of saying there's a lot of different variables, but, Really, very often it comes down to just the same things of just not having a good sleep structure and sleep health set up that just manifests in different ways for people. But the biggest thing is do not let it become chronic by allowing yourself to continue to lie there and try to sleep. Yeah, definitely. Something that I wanted to ask you, Nick, um, I'm sure a lot of people will be wanting to know more about certain things like naps and things like that and the reason that I'm asking this is because we spoke about sleep in itself and I can't help but think about obviously with what's going on at the minute all the nurses who are working or they continuously work throughout the year crazy crazy shifts mm. different schedules I deal with I have a few nurse clients doctor clients who the schedules are absolutely mental night shifts day shifts 12-hour shifts what is the recommendations for those people because they can't really change 
what they're doing with their work schedule in terms of to get this sleep hygiene better. And it seems like we can't really do much for those individuals, which is sad because their jobs and the importance of their jobs and the negative impacts that sleep will have on their cognitive function whilst doing such an important role is quite scary, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like you said, I mean, it's unfortunate that the people who are doing the most important jobs and the, the most, uh, you know, the jobs that are giving back the most are the ones who are, are dealing with this. And, you know, I, I definitely work with a lot of people in this, in this way and who are shift workers. And there's certainly things that we can do. And I've helped people out, you know, quite a bit in this realm. But, you know, people are usually disappointed with the answer that I give to this just because I can't, it's against, when we talk about circadian rhythms and healthy circadian rhythms, it's completely against that in, in every way, shape, or form. So I always say, I, and again, this usually disappoints people, but I can't make someone a good shift worker. I just can't, there's just no way to do it. There's no you know, sh switch that I can shift that makes you a good sleep worker. We're fighting physiology. It's the same way that like when I talk about someone from a movement perspective, I can't make you a good desk worker. I can't. I can tell you things to mitigate it and give you exercises to mitigate it and make sure you're getting up and moving and moving variably, but I can't make you a good desk worker and I can't make someone a good shift worker. The thing I'll say is if you're in that position where you have to be shift working, the next layer to this, which is again, not always practical, practical for everyone, stay on that schedule all the time. That's the only hope to really, not the only hope, I shouldn't say. There's always ways to mitigate. There's always things that you can do that make it a little bit better. But the only way to really kind of work against this is to stay on that schedule. And you basically take those five lifestyle variables, those five circadian levers and a few others, and you flip-flop them. So everything that you and I would do to have the best possible daytime routine and then the best possible nighttime routine, shift workers would do the complete opposite. Right, so from a light perspective, they would need to get daylight lamps or things like that. They're going to give them daylight in the middle of the night, so they actually get that cue. They would wear their sunglasses on the way home, driving home from work, so that they're not getting in any daylight. They'd have blackout shades at home, and their timing of food would be just like um, the just like how it would be opposite for us. Um, and that's really the the best way, you know. So when you're if you're going to be a shift worker, to try and keep that schedule consistent. And I know that's not feasible for everyone because, you know, say you're a nurse who's only working three nights a week, you're not going to be shift working the rest of the night, nights of the week. And I get that. Um, but what I do find that's very common, and if you have the ability to not do this, do not flip flop. Do not be a day worker one day and then a shift, a night worker later in that week. That is just, I mean, complete, um, complete opposite of ever being able to try and, you know, really catch up. And, you know, I think, Right now is probably like the worst time to unfortunately talk about it because there's just, I know there's so many nurses and people that are on the front lines right now where it's just whenever, whenever it's needed. Right. And I think, so now is not the norm. Um, so by all means, you know, of course, we're all incredibly appreciative for everyone who's on the, who's on the front lines and who's sacrificing themselves uh, and their, their health in this way for, for everyone else. So um, obviously continue to do what you, you have to do right now, but um but yeah, that would be the, that would be the, you know, really the only, the only thing. And then you can still use, you can always use those five, you know, regulating circadian levers as to at your disposal for in terms of energy or, you know, performing or any of these things, use them to your advantage as much as, as much as possible. Um, naps are a, a tricky, uh, tricky situation and they could be a slippery slope 
whether it's with shift workers or in general, if you're struggling with sleep, I typically discourage people from napping. Again, counterintuitive, but when we go back to that sleep pressure that builds up, right, that mechanism of sleep pressure building up, that sleep pressure goes down when we sleep, even when we nap. So what ends up happening is you want, when it's time for you to actually sleep for your big block of sleep, you want as much of that healthy sleep pressure built up as possible, especially if you've been struggling with sleep, because you want that sleep pressure that's so overwhelming that it just helps you fall right asleep. And if you're napping, especially napping too late into the day or on weird times, you're not allowing that sleep pressure and those chemicals to build back up and you're missing out on some of those variables. So if we're talking about a shift worker, if they nap, especially at weird times, now they have less adenosine built up and their circadian rhythm is the complete opposite of what it should be and they're stressed about it, so their arousal system. So now on all three mechanisms, they're shot. So there's no way they're getting to sleep and getting good quality sleep. So at the very least, they can at least have that sleep pressure built up that allows them to, to fall asleep. So if anything, I would actually probably say that for shift workers and people in those situations, naps are a complete no. What about everybody else who don't have shift workers? Is it something that you recommend to clients? For example, I know a few people who have that kind of, if they can, that is nap. I know there's even some yeah. companies now who are actually having sleep pods built in, isn't there? I've seen, I've seen that quite quite yeah. often where they look like massive bean pods that people are now napping in in the lunch hour. For sure, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing to think with with naps is, you know, if you're finding that you are, if, if naps you find help you and they help with your cognitive function and you know, they're just something that you adjunct and you can sleep perfectly fine at night, great. But if you're someone who really is craving naps consistently, I would take a look at your nighttime routine and look at how you're sleeping at night because it could be an indicator of really needing um, to optimize your sleep quality. Um, as with most things, it, naps depend. Again, if even outside of shift workers, if you're someone who struggles with sleep, especially falling asleep at night, I wouldn't nap for the exact reasons that I explained uh, just a couple minutes ago with the buildup of that sleep pressure. But if you're someone who has otherwise quote unquote healthy sleep and you don't necessarily struggle or think that you struggle, I think naps can be perfectly fine. There's just two caveats. The first is uh, duration. So the actual duration of your nap. Um, and they should fall into two categories. They should either be what we call like a quick cognitive reset, where you're only sleeping, say, 20 to 30 minutes. You're not really getting into any deep restorative sleep, but you're getting some of the mental reset uh, capacity. The other category should be in the range of like 80 to 90 minutes, where you're trying to attain all of the stages of sleep to get all of the physiological benefits. Um, and what you find is where you're anywhere in the middle or too much, you're getting yanked out of somewhere deep within your stages of sleep, which just never feels good. Um, you get that feeling of sleep inertia that we've all experienced where it's just, it's just not pleasant at all, right? So um, the other thing is the timing. So the timing is important. What I mean by that is time of day. Um, you want to allow, again, back to that sleep pressure, you want to allow at least eight hours after your nap ends to your bedtime to actually allow that sleep pressure to healthily build back up because you don't want to be sacrificing your ability to sleep well at night just for the sake of getting a nap um, midday. So. No, really good. Thank you very much for, for that. Um, and yeah, well, I think we'll, we'll leave it there, Nick. I, we, we've, we've covered quite a lot today. I don't want to take up any more of, more of your time, but I think a lot of people will get a lot from this one today in, in terms of um, not just the importance of sleep, but how they can start, 
making it more of a priority in their life and taking steps towards getting better sleep from some of the steps that you mentioned and it's good with with those that people can take what they need from those steps and what they actually need to do like when you talked about shift workers they might not necessarily be able to do all those things when we spoke about the circadian rhythm that's something that's going to be kind of shot like you mentioned but there is still other things that they can take from the the tips that you give to still at least become a, somewhat of a better sleeper and an all-round healthy human being Absolutely. Yeah. There's always, there's always a way, you know, and I always tell people no matter how long you've been struggling with sleep. So if you're someone who's listening, who's been struggling with chronic sleep issues for years and, you know, people always say sleep is not like the bank, like you can't make up for sleep. And that is true. What they're saying is that if you miss out on a night of sleep, you can't get back the benefits from that night of sleep, but it perpetuates this notion that you can never kind of get back any health. And I find that with working with people, once you start to really restore good quality sleep, you can get a lot of your physiological markers and subjective measures back pretty quickly. Um, so you can, it's never too late to, to kind of reset the, hit the reset button on your sleep and in turn your health. So, you know, there's always a way and just, you know, it's being open to that process. So. hundred percent. I hope this episode has made a lot of people look at their sleep and actually if there is these things that we spoke about today that are occurring in their life. If they can start to look at sleep, it'd be, I'm sure it's going to be a game changer for them once they start taking it a little bit more seriously and being being adherent to the sleep like they're adherent to training it's going to put people in a good place and lead them in the right direction isn't it absolutely yeah 100 percent. i mean i look at you know if you want to whatever your goal is and health performance you know sleep is the lever man sleep is the one thing you can pull that enhances it all so you know check that box you know take a deep dive into it check the box and um and you'll see profound impacts across the board. Do you want to just give the listeners a little bit of a rundown where they can find you, Nick? And if there's any trainers, I'm sure that will be interested in taking your course down the line. I know that I'm for sure would be interested in that and about your the summit that you've created, the recovery summit, that would be good. And I'm sure a lot, a lot of even general population, some of my listeners as well, I recommend that for them as well because it is all about learning it is all about education and that's what i want to do with my podcast is give them the education from people like yourself and the experts in these areas to ultimately learn about this stuff rather than just taking everybody else's word for it yeah absolutely yeah i mean education is the name of the game and that's how we ultimately make a difference um across the board so yeah i mean for me you can find me really on all the major uh, social media platforms as the online sleep coach so you know, Instagram, the online sleep coach, one word, uh, Facebook, the online sleep coach as well. Um, website is online sleep uh, email. You can, I'm always open to emails. Uh, feel free to shoot me questions or thoughts, um, at online sleep coach at gmail.com. Um, for the coacher coaches and practitioners, um, the website that'll have all the information on the course that's coming up. Um, that'll be sleepcoachcourse.com. Um, and I'm hopefully going to be releasing that course uh, July of this year. So within a few months here, and it's going to cover all things sleep, sleep coaching, how to actually go through the process of sleep coaching, how to market it, how to assess it. Um, we're going to also take a deep dive into circadian biology and circadian rhythms, um, just all aspects of recovery as well. So touching on things like heart rate variability and all elements of recovery. Um, the summit that you mentioned, I'm not sure when this will uh, will actually air, but um, 
The summit is May 1st and 2nd. Um, if you go to sleepcoachcourse.com slash virtual summit, um, you can register there. It's a completely free event. We have 30 speakers and the theme is really all things recovery. So a lot of what we talked about today, as well as, you know, nutrition and mindset and um, you, you name it. So, um, and for coaches and trainers, it's approved for 1.4 CEUs through the NSCA. Um, so just as a nice uh, added bonus as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, Nick. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on and uh, stay safe and healthy. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fat Fix podcast. And I hope you all enjoyed today's show. If you have not already, please make sure you subscribe and you don't miss out on any future episodes. I also can't stress enough how much it means to me to those that have left me a star rating and written review on iTunes. This will ultimately help me reach more people like you and really help them too. So please give me two minutes of your time to do this if you haven't already. Lastly, any shares and mentions on social media is also massively appreciated. I will see you very soon for the next episode. Thank you very much.